Welcome to episode 262 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Corey Weathers. Corey Weathers recently released her new book, Military Culture Shift, that was born out of conversations she was having within the military community. She saw trends and shifts within the military community and wanted to get all the information out of her head and down on paper. She did a remarkable job with her book, Military Culture Shift, in covering not only the history of military culture, but how each generation views different issues and how culture is shifting not only in the world, but in the military too. I have been following Corey for years, and I'm really excited to have her as a guest on the podcast. She is a leader in the military space. She is a licensed professional counselor, a military culture expert, military spouse, and so many other things. So I'm really excited to share her perspective, and I highly recommend you go out and get your own copy of Military Culture Shift today. But before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that Women of the Military podcast is available on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. Now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome, everyone, to Women of the Military Podcast. I'm so excited to have Corey Weathers here. She, I've been following her forever before even I started my podcast. I was just telling her I met her like long, long, long time ago before anyone knew who I was, or I don't even think I had started my blog. It was a long time ago, but I'm so thankful that she's here and that she's that she wrote this book, Military Culture Shift. I've been reading it the past two weeks and it keeps blowing my mind. And I keep thinking, oh, I learned so much. And then I read another chapter and I'm like, oh, there's more to it. So I'm really excited to have you here and to talk about this book. So thank you for being here. Amanda, I am thrilled. I've been watching you grow your podcast and and just seeing so many people just known and understood by what you're putting out. And so it's such an honor to spend some time with you. Um, I was saying when we first, when I first logged on, like I've been watching you too for so long and it's taken too long for us to connect this way. So thank you for having me. So I know a lot about you, but I want to make sure that the listeners know who you are. And so can you tell us a little bit about your background and who you are? Yeah. Yeah. So Thank you. Um, so I am a clinician by trade. I always knew that I um, wanted to do counseling. Um, my, my career, I started, I actually thought I was going to stay in women's trauma. Um, and I really love that area. And so the first four years of my career, I actually worked with women out of prison and I loved it. And I would say as a woman, I tend to get mostly women coming in um, to see me because I think there's just something about um, women's issues, women's trauma, that it's just so much more comfortable to go and see somebody that understands your world and your life. And so my husband, so I, so that was the direction I wanted to go professionally. Um, my husband came home one day while I was in school, graduate school, and said he wanted to join the military. And I was like, that was not on my radar. I was in the process of opening a practice and I told him no for a year and a half. I just was like, this is not, and I didn't even understand what it all meant. Um, and this will show you how much I was not tracking this decision. When I finally did say yes, in my mind, I literally was like, um, okay, you can go and do this basic thing and then we'll decide. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> of course we're locked in after that. And I honestly, our first duty assignment, the people and the community just changed our life for good. You know, we thought we were coming into the community too. I think what ultimately happened is the community served us and changed us. And from that point forward, I just knew I wanted to shift my career to doing everything that I could to use those talents for the community. So whether it was for spouses, whether it was for service members, or whether it was for couples or sometimes even their military kids. And so my whole career has been, I would say, if I could sum it up, I've been studying this culture, living in it and working with it and trying the best that I could to truly understand people's stories, whether you're a spouse or a service member, and then however best I can serve. So I've evolved from counseling to coaching. Um, I found that um, this community appreciates that coaching angle of things. And even evolving that into consulting organizations that serve our community. So how do we build out programming that's actually effective, um, that works? And, and so I bring that clinical angle and then somehow landed into writing, which, you know, I don't know if I would suggest it to everybody, <laughs> but, 
but it was the easiest way for me to collect all of this information and try to do good with it. So creative career, I think as any spouse would have, um, but really devoted and grateful to this community that I love so much. And I feel like with your book and the focus, we have to talk about like what year was it when you when your husband joined the military and you guys became a military family? Yeah, we came in in 2008. My husband um, started reserves while he was still in school. Um, so we thought we were going a reserve angle. But then, you know, at some point we had this discussion and we decided to be all in. So we came in 2008. When the buildup from that first decade after 9-11 was really strong, and even though people were getting a little bit tired, there was a lot of still patriotism there. There was still a lot of, it was before social media came on the scene. So all of that of you're going through the same struggle with your neighbors. Like, and then that, when I say it changed us, that was a big part of it because we were going through what everybody else was going through. Um, so yeah, we came in in 2008. Um, he's now been in for 16 years and we are with that group of Gen Xers, especially that are going, Ooh, what do we do? How long do we stay in for? And do we go past 20? Yeah, I joined the military in 2007, and then my husband joined in 2006. So even though I told you that we're older millennials, we're like right at the cutoff, 83, 84. And so- And we are young Gen, Gen Xers. So I, we're about the same place. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen there's like, some people say there's like a micro generation, which is like from like 1978, 79 to like, people said 82, but I think it should go to like- 85 because my sister is two years younger than me but she has a she's much more of a millennial in the typical sense than I am because I didn't get a cell phone until I went to college and she had a cell phone in high school and I feel like that and like social media was like a new thing that only college students could do and like so I feel like they call it I think they call it like the Oregon Trail generation I'm like I very much and there's also that there's these other micro generations like the uh, Zennials would be an older Gen Z and a young millennial. So there's always these like, and I would, I would almost describe them as these generations that go through something significant in their most formative years. Like you just described with the cell phone, the difference of two years between your sibling and you. And yet the cell phone was such a huge historical marker, but technological marker that shifted the way you did life, right? So you ended up having two totally different experiences of adolescence and adult um, simply because of when you got a cell phone. Exactly. Yeah. It's really weird because yeah, she's just two years younger than me. And it's like, she grew up in a totally different world. And okay, so getting getting back on my focus questions. This isn't your first book. Your first book is Sacred Spaces, which you wrote in 2016. So can you tell us a little bit about that book? Because you said you didn't really want to be a writer, but that's what happened. You know, I was that person that like the writing sounded like a really neat idea, but then I would talk myself out of it by saying, you know, whatever, all this effort I'd put into something and it's going to be in a used bookstore someday or used as somebody's decor decorative prop for something else on their bookshelf. But, you know, I think both books I felt a compelling and if I didn't write it, then I didn't know what to do with all this energy of all the things to say. And so Sacred Spaces came out in 2016 when I was given an opportunity to travel overseas and see deployment conditions for all branches, which was a crazy experience. They had never taken a spouse overseas before who wasn't already like on staff with the Department of Defense or who wasn't like a dual service spouse, right? So this was just, you know, little me, I'm a military spouse, and yet I'm getting on a plane with the Secretary of Defense. And I mean, like the the plane, the E-4B that has like United States of America VIP plane. And it was just so crazy of an experience that if I could ever share that, I would love to do a podcast sometime where I share the inside, what that was actually like, because it was just a crazy experience of of being in a different world. Um, that very few people have experienced and lots of anxiety, but it was the holiday tour for the Department of, uh, for the Secretary of Defense. And basically we went to Turkey, two places in Iraq, um, Afghanistan, which ironically to, we went to where my husband had been stationed during his deployment, which was purely by coincidence. And then um, I was able to go on two aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf. So I really got to see Marines and Navy, Air Force. I got to sit in the cockpit and watch an in-air refueling, which was 
amazing and terrifying all at the same time. And it just changed. And that was the point of taking me was to change perspective. And how do I write about that, especially for family members back home in a way that maybe was different that than service members share? Of course, how, what am I going to say that service members don't say all the time? Like we have so many service members that come home and try to describe what they just went through or what they saw or what walking on endless amounts of gravel feels like going to and from the bathroom, right? Or having to kit up completely to go to the bathroom. And of course, you know, we try to come home and share that. And as spouses and as family members, we kind of zone out because we weren't there. Like, and does that even really matter? You know, like, do I need to store that in my head? And so how was I going to tell the story differently than what so many other service members and my husband had tried to do? So what I decided to do was during that trip, I decided to immerse myself in all the multi-sensory experiences I could have, like really allowing myself to feel that gravel and what that was like and what was the smells like and what was the, and what I, what really changed my life, what, and really what changed my marriage was I got to really step into his shoes a little bit and experience just for a moment what he might've been feeling and what he might've been going through. But even to the point of when I'm in Afghanistan calling home to him and I was so excited to be where he had been and see the things that he had seen and see the mountains that he had seen. And I'm calling him and he's picking up the phone, not knowing who it is that's calling, which is exactly a role reversal, right? And he is half asleep and I'm in utter excitement, which is such a role reversal. And I'm like, you're not going to believe this. Can you hear the helicopters? Like you love helicopters and I'm right where you are. And I was just so excited. And he literally was like, okay, you know, like he was so not excited about it. And I had this moment that clicked for me that really what our marriages needed the most is, is the ability to hold these very sacred um, experiences that we're both having on both sides to, to number one, hold them sacred. And I don't mean like a spiritual way, but just that these are, these are very important experiences that we each go through that change our lives whether you're at home doing the best that you can to survive maybe single parenting or whether you're on a deployment or a TDY or getting to do something you've been dreaming of doing forever. And how do we communicate that way in a way that we can respect and understand that we don't have to understand it all exactly, but we can still respect it and hear it and see it as worthy of listening to those stories. So that was a long way of saying that that first book was really about, this was my experience in sharing our marriage and sharing the ups and downs of our marriage, the difficult conversations that we had had, and really changing my heart, um, letting go of some of my resentment of the things that I felt was pulling us apart. How could new conversations bring us back together? I was in a writing group with mainly military spouses and I was writing about my deployment. And one of the comments that really surprised me was, I've never talked to my husband about what it was like and reading your words helps me understand what he was going through. And I was like, I haven't ever talked to my husband like in the deep, intimate way of which I was writing about what I had experienced. I had only like talked on surface level. And so I thought it was interesting that that's a conversation that probably needs to take place. And, but it's kind of like hard and awkward. Like, how do you bring it up? So I, I guess I need to read that book too, so I can open that door to that conversation as well. Well, and it was really, my husband was the first one to use the word or the phrase sacred space. And it was when he was really sharing with me something very difficult that he had experienced during a deployment. And he was trying to tell me about it at home and I was listening but I was asking him a lot of questions because I was trying to show him that I understood or that I was trying to respect the story that he was telling me. And he finally just like quieted me down for a second and just said, Hey, this is a really sacred space for me. Like this, I just need you to just sit and honor it and listen to it. And I was, I didn't know I was interrupting him. And and he was like, I need you to hold this as a very sacred thing. And it's okay that you don't understand it. And it's okay that you weren't there for me when I went through it. And it was sacred in that I've bonded with these other people and that's okay too. And it turned into a very powerful conversation where after I listened to him, he actually listened to me as I shared my sacred space moments. 
of wrecking my car and having to figure that out by myself, having to dig deep as a spouse where nobody was going to come and help me, you know, in the, in the middle of the night, you know, and, and realizing we both had very sacred spaces and that I had also stopped sharing my stories because I thought my stories didn't compare to his when really both of them were important to each of us and how do we actually sit and respect both of them. And that was a really big game changer for us in our marriage. Yeah, that sounds so powerful. Yeah, because it's easy to be like, oh, you're the one overseas, like your story is really important. My challenges are nothing. I think the military community at large has a big problem with comparison and like you can't complain. Someone else has it harder. And so I think that makes a lot of sense. And really powerful to hear both sides. And as someone who is both a military spouse and a service member, I often like feel this like inner tension because I I can say like, no, it's hard to be a spouse. It's hard to be a service member. They're very different in like how they're hard, but that doesn't mean that they're both not hard. Well, and can I also say, because I know that your audience is a lot of female service members, that being a female service member is also a sacred space. It's also a sacred experience that very few understand. Um, and I think that's why your podcast is so powerful because it, it it illuminates the struggle. It illuminates also the deep complexity that's there. And so it basically creates a sacred space where everybody can come together and feel understood and share their very um, they're very deep and also difficult sometimes stories and that it's a safe place to do that, you know? So I think that your podcast allows for a sacred space to be there. I think as people are listening to this, it's really, there's so many different kinds of moments and sacred spaces that we can have. I've had, I've had women reach out to me and say, having a miscarriage was a sacred space moment for them because it's, again, something very few people understand. And it's something that they want people to just respect and honor and not try to fix. It is what it was and it changed my life, you know, and, but I need somebody to hear the story and honor it, you know? So I think it's about how do you figure out what your sacred spaces are and then how do you start telling the story in a way that can be healing for you, but also to your, to what you're doing brings us together where we can start talking about it more. Yeah. I mean, doing the podcast has been so healing for me because I did feel really alone and I felt like what I was experiencing, I was the only one. And then hearing other women share their story and having, you know, the same experience. And I'm like, oh, this is not just me being the only one. And actually, male veterans have reached out and they've experienced things that I thought were unique to females, but it actually is something that just nobody's talking about. And because you know, we start the conversation and then people are able to find that it resonates. So that's so true. I love it. So there's been a lot of time that was 2016 that you wrote that book. And now it's 2023 and military culture shift came has just come out in November. I know a lot has happened since then, but like what's happened since then? I mean, seven years is a long time for an author to like, I was really like, I'm never going to write a book again. Um, No, I actually enjoy the process of it, but I, again, I think I needed to feel compelled on what I was going to actually say and not just say things to say them. And so I think during those seven years, um, I really dove into a lot of helping and and counseling and coaching and, and teaching and traveling and speaking engagements and where it was really about helping people understand each other, understand their marriages more. And I think over the course of those seven years, what I didn't realize was happening was I was hearing so many topics and issues that would come up, let's say in the counseling office or the coaching sessions. And then I would go and travel and speak, do a speaking engagement and work with this group over here. And then I would hear those same trends and issues kind of pop up in that group over there. And then I would go, okay, wait a minute, there's a theme going on. I keep hearing, for example, before COVID even hit, resentment was a huge issue that was circulating, especially through the spouse culture. I was also seeing a different kind of resentment on the service member culture. Um, But I was just hearing, you know, so I would hear a topic and then I would go, okay, I'm going to test this out everywhere I go and see, is it just within this group? Is it just with spouses or is it culture wide? Is it branch specific? 
or is it happening everywhere? And then of course I would also start talking to, you know, some of your lower enlisted versus your senior leaders. And I just really became curious of all these trends and topics that were, that were threaded throughout our entire culture. And then I was felt like I'm onto something here, like something is happening. And then I would see those trends shift and I would see them change or evolve into something new. And then I would test those out too. And so really what I started to see is I was taking this clinical approach that I would normally do in a counseling office with maybe one person or one family. And I was really zooming out and really studying the whole culture as if it's one big family and the ups and downs and how it was changing over time. And I got really fascinated with all of these shifts and changes that were happening. And by the time I got to last year, we had gone through COVID as a culture. Globally, that was hard for everybody. But considering we had been through a two-decade global conflict in two different countries and also spread out into hundreds of other locations across the globe, our culture went through a lot. So COVID, I felt like, was almost broke us. Um, it was more than I felt like we could handle on top of everything else. And then I realized that was like a false peak because Afghanistan, the exit of Afghanistan came soon after that when we were already kind of crashing from COVID. And that was a huge marker that I experienced um, where I was getting calls from everybody. I was seeing us really crash and something big was happening in our community. And when we were on the other side of that and all the news and all of the stories that were coming out were, you know, um, toxic leadership here, or sexual harassment here, and they were very important, big topics, but I just felt like it was being addressed like whack-a-mole. That's going to date me as a Gen X, but like, like one topic at a time, we're just kind of trying to smack down these topics and deal with them one at a time. And, and here I had been watching these trends and things shift over time for 15 years. I was like, we need to have a bigger conversation. This is not just one thing here, you know, sexual harassment, for example, that's been going on for a while and it and it's a complex issue. That's not just about toxic leadership. It also has to do with how we're treating each other in the ranks and how we're communicating in the ranks and the resentment that's been storing up all, to, all over time and the new generation that's coming in. There's just a lot of complexity there. So that's when I knew it was time to write this next book where I, number one, needed to get it all out of my head. I've been storing it up for a while, but also it was fascinating to me. And I felt like leaders needed to, leaders of all levels needed to have this same perspective and this um, viewpoint. Yeah. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how you focused on the different generations and like you hear about the baby boomers and Gen X. Well, sometimes you don't hear about Gen X and the millennials and then, you know, and all the, and the Gen Z, but like, I didn't really understand why, like why people were classified in groups and why it mattered and how it shaped how they viewed things and like why some of the like I mean there's so much friction between the different generations but if you don't start with understanding like why different generations do different things then you can't really understand it so how did you like take everything in your head and write it in a book and was it like did you start with the generation piece or did you start somewhere totally different Goodness, that's such a big question. Um, on one hand, like it was a big hot mess in my head, mostly organized through these trends and shifts and topics that I was seeing. Um, I knew the generational piece was coming into play because you know, there was so much talk about millennials coming in, in the American culture, millennials coming in and being labeled as snowflakes or, um, but really what they were doing is was disrupting a lot of the beliefs and, and values, or at least challenging how institutions were addressing everything from diversity to authority to what does it mean to have a conversation and, and can we speak up and challenge authority figures without it coming across as disrespectful and being labeled as snowflakes. And so we were seeing all of that happen in the American culture. And I was tracking that too, as I was seeing these things happening in the, in the military culture and realizing the military tends to be about 10 years behind the American culture, but yet our millennials are coming into our culture and, and, and kind of addressing or trying to address the way the Amer that they could in the American culture. And yet we're clashing. Right. And so even though the military has in some ways been ahead on diversity topics, when you have a millennial, let's say, that's coming in and challenging authority, or or let's just take, um, you, you know, you have so many women listening, just challenging, can we wear ponytails? Like that one topic, right? Like, can we just not like 
can we just wear ponytails and, and at least while we're stateside? That one question that seems like such an easy thing to ask, like, why can't we advocate for that? And then you've got older generations who were brought up in a military culture where you don't change things and you don't question authority. And these regulations have been around forever and there's good reason for them. It was so important that we have this conversation about we can't no institution is going to survive if it's never willing to evolve. And yet we also know that it's not good for an institution to change entirely around one generation, right? So there was this clashing of how do we, what I call evolve and educate. When do I know as an institution I need to evolve and, and ponytails can be okay, right? Versus when do I need to educate that, no, we may not be able to make this change over here because it could completely crumble everything that we stand for. So this was a huge clashing that was happening in our culture and something that I saw leaders needed to have. Um, they needed help walking through how to adjust their perspectives um, on why they do things, why they see the military for what it is that everybody sees it differently and that can, doesn't have to be scary. And really that's just like a family get together, if you wanna call it that, in the counseling room. Like it's different generations and can we do chores differently? And it's, so it's the same thing just with 2 million people. <laughs> just with 2 million people. And it also was interesting because like one of the other like major things that changed was like women in combat. And I just did an interview yesterday and she talked about how when she was deployed, they were like, okay, you're going to be the gunner. <clears throat> they didn't care that she was a woman. But then like back in the States, they were like, women can't be in combat. And it's like, there, so there was like that dichotomy of like, you know, people serving in combat roles, but then they couldn't serve in combat roles. Like when you talked about it from a legal aspect and it was, and then they were like, we need to do a study. <laughs> and I was like, why? They're, you're doing a study in, in the country and it's working. Well, and what I think I really wanted to do is, you know, these are great questions and they're, and they're also really great. They're great topics that need to be discussed. And there's also really good challenges that are happening too, such as why does there need to be a survey to make a change in that, you know, and why does it need to take five years to get the answer back? Right. So those are very good, important discussions worth having. And I, I, what I was seeing is that I knew that if those discussions were going to go well, and if we could speed up the process, the only way to speed up the process is to create understanding and build bridges wherever possible. And so I really enjoyed going into these units where there was boomers and millennials and maybe even a Gen X in the room and talk about how do we work differently? What are our values? How are our values differently? Where do we get our values from? How do we prefer to communicate? How do we define trust and authority and, and break down some of these um, labels, the negative labels, especially, right? Like how do we get boomers and millennials in the same room talking together and let millennials say there's a more efficient way to do this without boomers feeling threatened? Boomers say, I don't want to change this because it changes everything for me and have millennials hear it right? That's what I felt was the birthplace of how do we evolve our culture in a healthy way without fighting and hurting our, ourselves through it. It was funny in the interview yesterday, the, she was an older Gen X and she's like, when the war kicked off, the first thing I did was went and talked to the people who had done it before. And cause I had so much respect and I was like, I'm a millennial. I did not do that. All I was, but I also like came in later. And when I had people who had deployed during Gulf Storm and it was 2009 and they're telling me about, and I'm like, what, what about like what's actually happening right now? But I was like, I had such a different opinion and like reading your book, realizing like my perspective was very different than hers because I was like, I can do this on my own. I have, you know, like I have the tools and the resources and I don't need to hear what you have to say, but that can seem totally disrespectful, you know, to older generations. And I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that people mean to come across disrespectful when it comes back to those values. Right. So whereas my generation, generation X, even though I'm a young, yeah, I'm a, I'm a young, yeah, I'm a young Gen X. I'm an old millennial, you're a young Gen X. There you go. Even though those generations really 
value authority and respect surely based off of your, your time in and your experience and your rank or your status. Millennials and especially Gen Z have kind of flipped that upside down because information can be gotten anywhere. We can Google information. So he who holds the most information is not the most, um, the one with the most authority. And so things have shifted, but that doesn't mean that you're Gen X and boomer of how much has actually changed. They're living in their world and their experience as if authority is still based off of rank, experience, wisdom, and information, right? Whereas Gen Z is now really challenging us that trust and, and authenticity and treating me like a human being, that's how I det determine who is my authority figure. Even if you may be a higher rank, I'll, I'll give you that authority because I'm supposed to, but that doesn't mean you've earned my trust. And that's different from your older leaders. And so just being able to have that conversation helps us all understand nobody's trying to be disrespectful. We're just living in two totally different worlds and yet the same world together. Yeah. I mean, you can see that clearly in like the military's recruiting strategy hasn't changed or evolved. And so many people that I interview joined before the internet. So they only had their recruiter or someone that they knew to rely on for information. Now you have YouTube and, you know, the internet, Google, and all these resources to find out what it's like to be in the military. And, and we could go into like, you know, some of the, you talk a lot about the book and how people feel like hurt and, you know, and so they're sharing that perspective out there and the, and the military still is kind of relying on this like bait and switch type of thing where they're not being totally honest and thinking that you can't get the information because you don't know. And so I think that's what I've seen as a real challenge for recruiting. Yes. And I mean, you bring up a really interesting point because um, the book even walks through, like if we're going to talk through recruitment and the recruitment crisis, it's really helpful to understand why did we start recruiting in the first place? And what's been the history of how the DOD has recruited successfully or not over the years? And that helps you understand why they're doing what they're doing now. Right now, for example, the Army is using Be All You Can Be and using the theme song still. And of course, when it first came out, all of us Gen X were like, yeah, like nostalgia and everything's you know going back to the 80s. And we love that until you realize that all of Gen X, when they think about when they were kids playing Army in the backyard and those slogans of Be All You Can Be and that wonderful jingle that goes through your mind, the first thing that does for a Gen X is reminds you of who you wanted to be and being a part of this amazing thing. Thing. Um, and what they're really doing is marketing to the parents of Gen Z, right? If the parents are excited about the military and that nostalgia comes up, then that will encourage our Gen Z to come in. But the problem is 82% of new recruits are Gen Z military kids. This is a family business. And so when Gen X hears that jingle, we think back of what we wanted the military to be. And then we compare that to how we feel now, what we've gone through for two decades and going through the Afghanistan exit. And a lot of Gen X is feeling exhausted, burned out, betrayed in a lot of ways. And so that jingle is really this dissonance and this reminder that it's not what I thought it was gonna be. And I don't want my kid to join because it's not what I expected. And I actually feel morally wounded from it all. And so you can see how even just that recruitment strategy is backfiring. Um, and so it's important for all of us to understand not only how each generation is motivated, but how do you heal each generation and what kind of healing are they looking for? You know, that's such a good example because it's so true because there is a lot of hurt and resentment. And I don't think, I think part of my theory is part of the problem is that the leaders who stayed and didn't leave the military and they made general or full bird colonel, they're having all these like high level discussions and they're not remembering that, like, I think they should talk to people who left and find out why they left. Or my husband was heard a conversation where they were like, why are all the captains getting out? And they're like, I think it's this. And my husband's like, well, I talked to the captains and this is what they said. And they're like, I don't think that's it. And it's like, I talked to them. <laughs> like, I know what's going on, but they couldn't even like open their mind because that wasn't even something they considered because they stayed. And so I think that's part of the like, when they hear that jingle, that probably like gets them fired up and gets them because it's the military they want because they stayed in the military and they're leading the military. 
and have been successful in the military. And I think you have a really good theory there that I think is true. And I would just add to that theory that in the past, perhaps somebody, um, senior leaders could look at those that are leaving and say, well, that's the minority. They just weren't loyal or committed or, or whatever. And so we don't need to worry about those few that have left because look at the majority that has stayed. And now we're in a place where the, there's a big chunk leaving that could be the majority that's leaving that we actually do need to listen to what people are saying as their why. And what I hear from a lot of people as they're leaving is, and this goes back to your values, right? Millennials, I'll say Gen X especially really wanted a better work-life balance when we came in, but we didn't have the courage or we weren't raised in a society where we could challenge authority and ask for it. So when millennials came on the scene, valuing work-family balance even more than us, they weren't afraid to say it, right? And now Gen Z is coming in just expecting work-life balance. You can see how it's evolved over time. And so a big reason why a lot of millennials, especially on that captain level, if we want to talk army is leaving is because they want their spouses, want careers. They can be home with their kids. They want to do something purposeful, but they don't want it to be something that takes over their entire life. And, and they lose their identity because of it, especially when they've heard from so many veterans struggling, transitioning into civilian society. So now you have a whole bunch of people that are leaving because of their values, not because they're a minority group that just like they didn't like the military anymore. This is a whole generation that says, I not only want something differently, but I want um, to stand for something different. And so we're going to have to start listening. So true. that makes a lot of sense. And that makes so much sense when you think about like, well, it's just in the minority. We don't really have to worry about them. But now it is. It's shifting. And I've I've even seen it in like some of the things like my husband, he wants to be at home as much as possible, but sometimes it's not possible because it's the military, but he really strives to be at home. And sometimes he'll just be like, no, like I'm not doing that because my family is more important. And I think sometimes that ruffles feathers, but he that's what's important to him because he wants to be there for, you know, the kids and to support me and one of the things that was good about COVID, we we moved from a place that couldn't do uh, remote work because of the mission, and then we moved here. And when we first got here, the most of, they, he only had to go to work one day a week, and the rest of the time he could do telework. And nothing has changed work related, but now they're starting to bring them back into the office more. And when we first moved here, it was so nice because he could take the kids to school and I could do my work stuff. And now I'm starting to hit friction points because they're requiring him to be at the office more. And so it's making it so that work-life balance that we were really happy with because he was not, we're living in LA, so he has a commute and there's traffic. And so it's like, now I'm starting to see them like come back off of that, even though they were able to do the mission and people were able to work from home. And it's like, now you're kind of like backtracking and being like, we need people in person. And I'm like, but it was so nice. And I felt so supported. And now you're like taking it away, which is even worse than like not having it to begin with. Yes. And, you know, it's a good example of like COVID too, was that was kind of almost a, a global, but also in the military, all of us experienced that on some level, unless you're going through a deployment and that was a whole other experience of COVID. Right. But I think it did, it did impact the culture and that everybody had the experience of going, things could be different. And if they were different, here's what it would feel like. And when families got, even though we all kind of went through our own reintegration there for a minute of like, I don't know if I can, we can all be together in the same house <laughs> for this long. Everybody has to transition through that. But I think it showed our community what's possible. And then I think it goes back to questioning, right? Like we were talking about earlier, like, well, why do we need to do things this way? And can we evaluate that? And that's where we have to enter into those conversations of, is this something that we can evolve? And can we be in some ways more productive by doing remote work? And now that that gets even more complex because now Gen Z is saying they went through their most formative years online during COVID where school and their whole life was online. They're switching to flip phones and they want to come into the office, right? So you can see all this complexity of everybody valuing something different and we've got to be able to like conversate somehow through it. And as an institution, no, like this is either what we have to do for the job and allow people to ask questions like, 
what if that doesn't work well for us without it coming down on them and affecting their careers because they want to use their voice? Really challenging in a community that for decades has thrived off of being a regulated hierarchical structure where um, it's better to just keep your head down and get the job done and never have an opinion. And that's disrupting everybody or disrupting the whole system for people to suddenly have opinions. And if we can't say it to our boss, we're saying it online. And what do you do with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's because people are like, well, how did you serve in the military? I was like, well, I just ignored people who said, you know, sexual comments and like the next generation, like the younger millennials and the next generation, they don't stand for it. I had another podcast guest who talked about how she reported something someone said because she didn't like that they were saying it and she was like I went through the chain of command like I was supposed to and then they told her well that's just the way he is and they didn't do anything and she was like I'm out because she felt betrayed and like nothing was done whereas my like I would have just been like that guy's an idiot I'm just not gonna say like I never would have reported that up the chain of command which I was really proud because that is the right thing to do, but I would have just been like, it's easier to ignore it. And I know nothing's going to get done, but she believed that if she reported it, that the military would do something and then they didn't. And that betrayed her trust. Such a good example of, um, of topics that do need to be challenged and do need to evolve and how proud I am of these younger generations that are doing just that, that are learning how to be assertive and confident. And I mean, I, in the last couple of years, I started going around training both service members and spouses on how to be assertive in their communication. And you would think that the, I mean, well, a lot of people weren't tracking how passive spouses have become over time. But when I went to teach the service members how to be assertive, you would have thought that like I was introducing something that was going to blow up the entire military because they realize that tend to be passive going up the up the ranks right when they're talking up and and then they turn aggressive going down because they were no none of us were taught how to be assertive and me telling a group of service members you can like your example just now you can say this is not okay like the way that you're talking to me right now is not okay and that's not disrespectful and it's not that is just personal rights. Now we all have to be able to figure out how to say things without aggressiveness and attacking somebody. And we need to take ownership for that. But you're giving a really good example of a topic that does need to change. Just for me, even as a woman and as a Gen X, there were things that I didn't realize to your point that I was letting slip or letting I was not addressing them. And even worse, I didn't even recognize them as inappropriate things being said to me that it took the Me Too movement to go, oh my goodness, I was not even tracking that I was allowing it. And just the wake up call. And I, I guess if there's listeners that are, the younger listeners that are listening to this right now, maybe that you can remember to be patient for those of us that are older, that are kind of waking up to some of that, who may not even had paid attention to that. And how sad that is that we weren't paying attention to it, that because of the younger generation showing us how to appropriately with confidence and with assertiveness and with human decency, speaking up for yourself, how that can heal an older generation and give them the words that they can now take on themselves too. So there are these topics that definitely need to evolve and change. And our institution does need to change those things. And then there's these other topics that are also really important that we need to keep. Things like tradition and ceremonies and grounding ourselves in history, the appropriateness of history. And on some level, of wisdom that is gained by experience over time. Like Gen Z and millennials, I do believe and have heard that they want mentoring and that they want wisdom, but they want it to come from trustworthy relationships. And so all of these things go together. If we can find the good of all the generations together and get in the same room and talk about it, that's where good things are going to happen. But it starts with each of you starting those conversations um, respectfully and inviting everybody into the room and around the table. Yeah, I've created a Women of the Military Mentorship Program to help connect the people con considering joining and with people who have served. And like I got it started, but I'm having like a hard time like creating like the curriculum or like you know sustaining it besides like someone calling someone getting a little bit of advice and I'm like that's not really what I want I want it to be like a continual mentorship relationship but even 
like I never really received mentorship like mentorship when I was in the military was the commander would have an all call with the officers once a month and he would talk to us at lunchtime and give us advice but it wasn't like one-on-one mentorship and so I haven't really seen it in like like what I imagine I haven't ever seen it in practice and so I'm having a hard time getting a the people who have signed up to be mentors to understand like my vision and then also for the generation who wants the mentorship like they also don't really know how to like say no this is what I need and so I'm trying to work to make it better I'm really trying but it's so hard because I feel like can I speak to that for just a minute for both you and for people that are listening because this is happening across the board um in our just I want to say it's it's the American culture but I think sometimes I'm like you know I want to say it's everywhere but maybe it's not but I will say there is so much information overload right now. And I mean, not just internet information, there's decision fatigue, right? Like we can't even go out to dinner without yelping and looking at all the options, right? When we sit down to watch TV, there's all the options. When we go online, there's, I mean, I have a million tabs open right now, right? Like there's just so much information that we're getting from everywhere that it's getting harder and harder to commit to things, to follow through with things, to sign up for the things that really matter because you've signed up for all the other things too. And I don't want to commit to this because I might need to commit to these 10 things over here. And so we are just on information overload as a culture. And so to your point, we, I think it comes down to, you're going to hear me say it a million times, but it comes down to your values. What is really important to you? When I was working in a coaching session yesterday, I was helping the client think through in their business and in their life, like what are the top three things that matter to you the most that are like deal breakers, right? Spending more time with your family and turning your phones off at five o'clock or shutting your email off at five o'clock was one of them. For her, it was like doing something that she actually enjoyed and not volunteering her life away. Like whatever your values are, I think that's the first step. But for some of you, some of you have asked for mentoring, you've asked for help, or you've asked for like you, you need connection. Gen Z is the loneliest generation to date. And usually when they do the, that research, usually the answer is the elderly is the loneliest generation. And right now the youngest generation is even lonelier than our elderly population, right? So when people are saying they want mentoring, they want connection, that's really what we're saying is something I desperately need in my life to be well. And we're all talking about how wellness is more important than ever. And we need it to be accepted more than ever, but it takes you, whoever's listening, valuing it enough in your life, whether it is, I need to seek out mentoring or whether it is, you know what? It's time for me to start giving back. I've become so self-focused and become such a consumer of people, relationships, and information that perhaps what I'm missing is I need to give back. That once you identify that and sign up for it, you have to do it. You have to will yourself to get started. So I love the fact that you're starting a program on this because number one, it's needed. Number two, everybody's listening right now going, I do need that in my life. I either need to give back or I need to, like I either need to give I need to give down that wisdom that I've gained over time, or I need somebody to desperately pour into me where I can feel less alone and feel like I've got a path ahead. Make that a priority that you actually intentionally take action on because all the other things that you could be giving your attention to, I guarantee you are probably less fulfilling and they probably are stealing energy from you. So I love that you're building it and you, you need to build it and finish it. And, and maybe it starts with values. Maybe it starts with how do we as a mentor mentee relationship, identify our values, see if there's any differences there and start a conversation. Yeah. I've been playing with the idea of doing like uh, just a standing all call of like to try and get connected with the young women who have signed up. And cause I, I want to make sure that they're getting connected with the person and that they're getting, cause I can't mentor all of them. But I'm like, but I want a way that I could check base with them. I know that when I first, uh, one time when I got an email, I responded and they were like, you're actually responding? And I was like, well, who else would respond? But I think people have grown so accustomed of like computers responding or like VAs responding that she was just shocked that I was taking the time to respond to her. So I hope I'm going to try and start that next year and help and see what happens and not worry that if no one shows up, that's okay too. 
it's worth the risk, you know? And even I recently, um, even this week, I thought to myself, you know what I need at this stage after writing a book that hopefully, ever, you know, as many people as possible benefit from what I really realized this week was now it's time for me to circle the wagons and reinvest one at a time. Like coming back to that reminder of even if just one person shows up, it's so good for the soul to have connection. And that's what we all deep down inside need to keep well. And so it's always worth it, regardless the number, you know, because whoever's supposed to be there is going to be there. Thanks for that encouragement. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do it. Well, we didn't get through like any of my questions. No, it was such a great conversation. And I really highly recommend people go and check out Military Culture Shift. It has been like mind blowing. I just, I'm only halfway through it. And every time I read a new chapter, I'm like, oh, something new to think about. And so I'm really just thankful that you put all the words together because I think it's something the military community desperately needs, no matter if you're joining right now or a senior leader, everyone in between military spouses, you know, service members, even families. And I even think like it'd be great for the civilians who aren't connected because it'll help with that civ mill divide that's there too. So it's a book for everyone. Thank you, Amanda, so much for having me. And I, I knew I did try to write it in a way that civilians could read it and, and hopefully understand, especially what our culture has been through in the last 20 years. My mother-in-law read it and said, you know, it was helpful. So I, I hopefully achieved that. Thank you for what you're doing. For those of you that are listening, thank you for serving. Thank you for telling your stories. Thank you for um, connecting with each other. So much has changed because of you and those were necessary changes. And I'm so proud that we have incredible women, especially like you that are serving and are showing our strength and our confidence and our capabilities and that, that people should not um, maybe put their ceilings or their assumptions on on what we're capable of doing. Uh, they shouldn't put those on us because I don't know about you guys, but my personality is like, if you're going to give me a ceiling, then just watch me. Like challenge accepted, right? <laughs> for sure. That is so true. If people want to connect you with you, where would be the best place for them to go? Yeah. Um, thank you. So my website is coreyweathers.com. My, my name, Corey, C-O-R-I-E, weathers, like the weather outside with an S. Um, my social media is all at Corey LPC, which stands for a licensed professional counselor. Just Google is the easiest way. Um, thank you for, for inviting me. Um, I hope that um, I can do the best that I can to share your story. So if anybody reads the book and you feel your story is reflected, reach out and let me know. Um, hopefully I succeeded at that. So thank you so much, Amanda, for having me and giving me the chance to hopefully encourage somebody today. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'll have the link to your website and your social media in the show notes so people can find it easily. And just thank you for everything you're doing for the military community. You too. Thanks, Amanda.